Good morning. Good morning. All right. Ohio gozaimasu. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Great to be here with you guys. Uh, seeing some uh, faces, uh, first service that we haven't seen in a while. I know some of the CAGs coming back in, and uh, I think they're supposed to be maybe pulling in today. Maybe everybody will be home before Thanksgiving. You know, that would be awesome. So uh, great to have everybody uh, just coming together here uh, as a family to worship the Lord. Uh, before we continue any further, let's go ahead and dismiss our elementary age children to their Sunday school class, as well as our Bible English class. We'll dismiss them as well. All right, well, for the rest of us, we're going to be finishing off our study through the book of First Timothy this morning. Um, you know, the book of First Timothy opened up with Paul charging Timothy to remain in Ephesus in order to combat some false teaching that had infiltrated the church at that time. Uh, he exhorted Timothy to charge, excuse me, charge others that they teach no other doctrine than the doctrine which they had first received from Paul when he established the church during his second missionary journey. He started the church. It was during Paul's third missionary journey that he spent some three years in the city of Ephesus, um, really laying the foundation of the gospel there within that church and really building and growing that church family. Um, And it was uh, in Acts chapter 20, that we read uh, when Paul was uh, on his way out, headed to Jerusalem. He stopped by in Ephesus, um, and he knew that savage wolves would come in among them, not sparing the flock, rising up from within. Uh, They would speak perverse things and draw the disciples away from the truth and into their lies. He knew that that would happen. He actually warned the Ephesian elders uh, before it even took place in Acts chapter 20, uh, before heading off to Jerusalem. But even with Paul's warning... They still fell prey to these savage wolves, these false teachers that came in seeking to take advantage of them. And so Paul leaves Timothy there in Ephesus in order to handle these false teachers, in order to teach the church how they ought to conduct themselves. He gave instructions regarding men and women in the church. He gave uh, qualifications that are needed for different leaders within the church. In chapter 4, he talked about what it meant to be a good minister of Jesus Christ, how Timothy needed to instruct the brethren that they may be nourished in the words of faith and the good doctrine which Timothy was taught and clearly followed himself. While chapter 4 dealt with the minister of the church, chapters 5 and 6 have focused in upon the ministry of the church, as Paul gave specific instructions on how Timothy was to minister to different groups within the church body. Paul gave instructions for how the church was to treat each other like family. Timothy was to treat the older men in the church as fathers, the younger men as brothers, the older women as mom, and the younger women as sisters in the Lord in all purity. He then gave instructions for the widows, uh, followed up with instructions regarding the church elders who served the body. Last week in chapter 6, we saw Paul address two more groups of people, the bond servants and the false teachers themselves. To the bond servants, he exhorted them to serve their masters as unto the Lord. To the false teachers, Paul exhorted Timothy to re- draw himself from them, to not have anything to do with them. 
He warned Timothy of the greed that these false teachers had, how they supposed godliness was a means of gain, that they could use their position and their power as false teachers for their own prosperity. He wanted Timothy uh, or excuse me, he warned Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. These lovers of money had fallen into a snare. They were leading others into their trap. And so Timothy was to have nothing to do with them. Instead, he was to understand that godliness with contentment was and is great gain. That Timothy and the rest of the church there in Ephesus should learn to be content with what God had provided and not get sucked into that desire for riches and seeking after riches. And that brings us to our account today as Paul wraps up his final exhortations to Timothy. Our text this morning is going to be 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 11 through 21. And the title of our study is going to be Living for the Eternal. Okay, Living for the Eternal. Will you all please rise to your feet in honor of God and his holy word? I'm going to read our text from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you have a different Bible translation, that's fine. just want to encourage you, do your best to follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. Paul concludes his first letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, with the following in chapter 6, verse 11. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness Godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age, not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, Guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning, the opportunity that we have to come to this place, to hear your word, to open your word, Lord, and in like manner to open our heart, open our minds our ears, Lord, to receive all that you would have for us today. Lord, we are confident and expectant that you want to speak to us today in the various situations that we're all experiencing and we're all going through. Lord, I'm confident that you have a word for each and every one of us. And so, Lord, give us attentive ears, Lord, that we might hear what your spirit desires to speak to us. 
Lead us and guide us, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. So here at the end of this letter, Paul has some final words for Timothy himself and for one other group of people that were within the church. As we look at Paul's closing exhortations, we can see that they're broken up into three different sections. In verses 11 through 16, Paul addresses Timothy specifically as a man of God. Uh, But as we'll see and note, these instructions really are for all men of God and all women of God. And then in verses 17 through 19, Paul has words for the men of wealth and how Timothy must instruct them. And then he concludes his letter in verses 20 and 21 with a final exhortation to, to Timothy to guard what had been entrusted to him. And so as we go through each of these sections, we're going to note different exhortations and instructions Paul gave to Timothy, see how they apply not only to the church there in Ephesus uh, during the first century, but how they apply to us here in Iwakuni in the 21st century. So let's begin with looking at two of the first commands Paul has for Timothy. They're in our opening verse, verse 11. Read it again with me. He says, but you, O man of God, Flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. We'll stop right there. Paul starts out verse 11 with the word but. Uh, But is a word of contrast. You guys all know that, right? Paul is contrasting the people he just talked about previous to this section with Timothy himself. The people that Paul just talked about in the section previous to this were the false teachers who were lovers of money. They thought that godliness was a means to gain, that they could use their platform they had to prosper themselves. These were people living for the world, living for the pleasures and the wealth of this world. But Timothy was to be different, okay? to be the complete opposite, really. These men were men of the world, but Timothy was a man of God. That phrase, man of God, you would think would be a very common phrase in the Bible, but it's only used twice in the entire New Testament. Uh, Here in 1 Timothy, and then again, Paul uses it in writing his second letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy. In the Old Testament, it was used somewhat sparingly as well. Uh, The list of people referred to as a man of God in the Old Testament is limited to a very select group of people, including the likes of Moses, uh, Samuel, Elijah, Elijah, and David. And so uh, Timothy was in some elite company here as a man of God. But the interesting thing is that I believe these exhortations that Paul has specifically for Timothy as a man of God apply to all of us as well. For the only other time that this phrase is used is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul writes the following. He says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instructions and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, when Paul refers to the man of God there in 2 Timothy, he's speaking about all who have surrendered their life to the Lord, right? The scriptures are for each and every one of us as men of God, as women of God. And as men and women of God, we need to adhere to and follow these same exhortations that Paul has 
for Timothy. Now, the first exhortation that Paul has for Timothy and is for us as well is that he flee these things. Now, obviously, we want to ask ourselves, what things, right? What things is he to flee? Well, it's the things that Paul just talked about in the previous section, the love of money, the desire to be rich, the temptation and snare that riches bring, greediness, in addition to the false doctrines being spread by these false teachers that did not accord with the Old Testament teachings, the wholesome words of Jesus Christ, nor the teachings of the apostles, that doctrine which accords with godliness, according to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. Some people think that it is cowardly to run and flee. But in certain circumstances, fleeing is a sign of wisdom and it is the means of victory. Joseph, in Genesis 39, we read of his account where he fled from his master's wife when she cast longing eyes upon him and she ordered him to lie with him. The scriptures tell us that Joseph left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. He hightailed it out of there and that was a true act of wisdom on the behalf of Joseph. David fled before Saul when Saul was trying to kill him by taking a spear and heaving it at David. David wisely dodged the spear. He escaped out of the presence of Saul. And it was David's ability to flee the multiple attacks from Saul and to patiently wait upon the Lord to deliver him and to raise him up as the king over Israel is what led to his ultimate victory over Saul, him fleeing and waiting patiently upon the Lord. And so fleeing is an appropriate and wise choice in certain circumstances. Paul tells Timothy he needs to flee from these things. The temptation that comes with wanting money, the desire to be rich, the love of money. Timothy is to flee, to run away uh, from these types of things. Not only that, but the opportunity to use his platform for his own selfish gain as the false teachers were doing. Paul needed to flee from those things as well. But fleeing these things wasn't enough. You see, it isn't enough for us to simply run away from the bad things. And we need to also pursue after and seek after the good things. Right? If we only avoid evil without pursuing good, we will only end up isolating ourselves. We'll be known only for what we are against, but no one will ever know what we are for. And so that is why Paul follows up his exhortation for Timothy to flee with another exhortation to pursue. Just as the word flee is written in the imperative mood, so too is the command to pursue. The imperative mood speaks of a command, a strong exhortation to heed. Now this word pursue speaks of striving to do something with an intense effort toward a certain goal. Paul uses the same word in the book of Philippians when he writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. He says, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on. That's the same Greek word here. That I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward. Again, it's the same Greek word. 
the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul uses this term as an athletic term, picturing himself as an athlete pursuing after a goal, chasing after that finish line, chasing after that crown, wanting to lay hold of that victory, pressing forward with everything he had toward the sole purpose of attaining the prize. That is what is meant here by Paul telling Timothy to flee these things and to pursue after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. These are the things Timothy needed to devote his life to pursuing after. Not just fleeing from temptation and sin, but running after and pursuing these godly characteristics. Timothy was to pursue righteousness. Now, as a believer in the Lord, Timothy already had the righteousness of Christ accredited to his account. He had a righteous standing before the Lord because he was clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so if he already had it, why would he need to pursue after it? That's a good question. Okay, let me give you the answer. Okay, righteousness can speak not only of our standing before the Lord, but also our standing before one another. Okay. And it would seem that that is what Paul has in mind here. Righteousness speaks of our character and our conduct amongst one another. Pursuing righteousness in this sense speaks of doing what God asks of us in regards to how we treat one another. We're doing right by one another. Timothy was to pursue godliness. This speaks of living a life after God, living a life that's patterned after the Lord and his teachings for us. Pursuing godliness means we want to live like our Lord lived. We want to pattern our lives after him. He was to pursue faith. Uh, Again, Timothy already had faith in the Lord. He had faith in Jesus Christ. The idea here is not pursuing saving faith, for Timothy was already saved. The word faith here carries with the sense of faithfulness. Timothy needed to pursue after faithfulness. As a steward of the gospel, this is what is expected and required. In his letter to the church in Corinth, he wrote, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. It's one of my favorite verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. It's such an important quality to develop in your life. Okay, Those who are faithful with little, well, they'll be given more and more. Timothy needed to pursue after faithfulness, being committed to fulfilling everything that had been given to him that God might add to him even more. Not only was he to pursue righteousness, godliness, and faith, but perhaps above all these things, Timothy needed to pursue after love. This love that's mentioned here is agape love. It is a selfless and sacrificial love. It's the kind of love that God has for us. It is the greatest thing that we can seek after and pursue in our lives. And we know that this is the greatest of all things to pursue after because God is love. And so in our pursuit of love, we're really seeking after and pursuing God himself. Paul wrote, and now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is what should be define us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said the world would know that we are his disciples based upon our love for one another. Well, after love, Paul mentions patience. Timothy was to pursue after patience. Now, this isn't something that most of us are too thrilled about, okay? 
Like, we can get excited about pursuing righteousness and godliness and love, but when we say, oh, pursue patience, it's like, mm, I don't know if I really want to pursue patience. <laughs> we don't like to be patient, okay? We want things our way right away, right? That's kind of the mentality of our world. I did this for service here. My world, okay? Uh, maybe you guys don't struggle with the patience and you're very patient and godly people, and uh, I'm not like you. <laughs> maybe that's what it is. But you know, growing up, we ate instant noodles because that's all we could afford. But as we get older, we got a little bit more money. We exchanged our instant noodles for an instant pot, right? Like everything has to be instant, no matter what. If we've got money, we don't got money, it doesn't matter. We want it instantly. We want instant gratification, okay? We don't want to wait. But patience is very important to our overall growth and maturity in the Lord. James tells us that patience comes from the testing of our faith. He writes, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, meaning mature and complete, lacking nothing. You see, we don't like patience because it comes as a result of our faith being tested. Okay? I don't ever ask anybody to pray for me for me to be patient, because I know how patience comes. Okay, you're asking for trials. You're asking to be tested. And I don't want to be tested. Okay? I don't want to be stretched. And so don't pray for patience for me. Okay? Figure it out a different way. Okay? Don't come to me and say, hey, pastor, pray for me. I need patience. I'm not going to pray that for you. Okay? But you guys, we need patience. It is a necessary work in our lives. Without it, we would never grow and mature into the man or woman that God has called us and created us to be. And so pursue after patience. Let it do its work in you, molding you and shaping you into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul capped off his list with an exhortation for Timothy to pursue gentleness or meekness, as it's written in the King James Version. Now, this may seem a bit odd at first, seeing as how we've already noted how Timothy was perhaps a bit timid and that he needed to boldly confront these false teachers in Ephesus. But we have to understand that gentleness or meekness does not mean weakness. Gentleness describes a strength that is under control. Okay. Timothy needed to, to be, needed to be strong, but he needed to be in control. He needed to make sure that he remained calm, cool, and collected. And as he confronted these false teachers, he still needed to be an example of love and gentleness. The desire was to churn these people from their sin, to lead them in repentance. And the scriptures attest that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so, in like manner, Timothy needed to pursue and exercise gentleness as he led the church and as he confronted sin. And so these were the things Timothy was to pursue after. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. And these are the same things that we should be pursuing in our lives as well. But Fleeing and pursuing weren't the only exhortations Paul had for Timothy. Take a look at verses 12 through 16 to read of a few more. He says, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 
I urge you in the sign of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Here in these verses, Paul gave Timothy two more imperatives, two more commands to follow. He started with a command to fight. Timothy needed to fight the good fight of faith. This command isn't necessarily a new one for Timothy. In the opening chapter of this letter, Paul told him, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. First Timothy 1.18. Some translations have it that by them you may fight the good fight. The same phrase that's used here. Timothy was in a battle. He was battling against the lies that these false teachers were spreading. He was battling against the enemy who constantly wages his battle against the truth of God's word. Timothy needed to fight the good fight of faith, to contend for the faith, to stand in opposition to any who would come against it or try to attack it. As a shepherd of the flock of God in Ephesus, he needed to be willing to lay down his life in fighting for the souls of the people there. The word fight, it's an interesting one in the Greek. It is the word agonizomai. It's where we get our English word agonize from. We often hear about the agony of defeat in the sports world. But agony also describes the commitment that's necessary to engage in any sort of challenge. I have lots of different commentaries that I read from and studying. One of them, the Life Application Commentary, described it this way, saying, Athletes know the agony of training, the strain of preparation, and the pain that comes from maximum performance. All this suffering must be endured as beneficiary agony by those who want to do their best. And so agony isn't just a negative thing, but it can be a beneficiary thing. People that excel in sports, they don't just show up on game day and win, okay? They go through agonizing training. They go through rigorous amounts of preparation in the days and the weeks and the months prior to their events. They push themselves to their limits and seemingly beyond their limits that they may win the prize. And this is what Timothy was commanded to do by Paul. He was to fight with everything he had to contend for the faith and for the lives of those in Ephesus. And while doing so, Paul exhorted Timothy to also lay hold on eternal life. The idea of laying hold of eternal life is that Timothy needed to keep an eternal perspective. He needed to be living for the eternal. You see, the life we live here on earth is temporary. It is short-lived in the grand scheme of things. James chapter 4 describes our life as but a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Paul wanted Timothy's focus to be on the eternal, on the things that were going to impact not only life here on earth, but eternity in heaven. Timothy needed to spend his life laying hold 
of the eternal. With his eyes on the prize, the end goal for us all is, is heaven, right? To walk the streets of gold, to come before our Lord and Savior in awesome wonder and to join with the angels and the rest of heaven's hosts, praising and worshiping our Lord for all of eternity, Right? That is what's most important. As Timothy fought the good fight of faith, he needed to keep that proper perspective, and we need to be doing the same. Listen, we aren't living for this world. We aren't living for the passing pleasures of this world. We aren't living for the praise and adulation of man. We aren't living for ourselves. We are living for the Lord. We are living for the eternal. Now, In referencing this eternal life, Paul mentions two things that are involved in it. Paul says that Timothy was called to eternal life and that Timothy had confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. There is a balance here. Timothy was called by God to eternal life, but Timothy had a part to play in laying hold on eternal life. He confessed the good confession. Now, some may ask, what is the good confession? Okay. Well, if you look down to verse 13, we see that the good confession was also something that Jesus witnessed or something that Jesus testified of before Pontius Pilate. Well, what do we know that Jesus said when he was before Pontius Pilate? Matthew 27 tells us that Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And so he identified himself as the king of the Jews. In John's gospel, he continues, and my kingdom is not of this world If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Later in John's gospel, when Pilate claimed to have power to either crucify him or to release him, Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. And so it would appear that the good confession has to do with the words that Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, which were an acknowledgement of Jesus as king, a belief and trust in the truth of his kingdom, and an understanding that God is sovereign over all. And so based solely upon the the text here and the connection to what Jesus said before Pontius Pilate, it would seem that the good confession is an acknowledgement or a, a declaration of faith in Jesus Christ as not only king, but Lord of your life. Paul urges Timothy in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus that he keep this commandment. Which commandment? Well, presumably either the commandment to flee and pursue or the commandment to fight and lay hold of eternal life. Both are possibilities and both carry the idea of putting God first in his life, making God the center of his life. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. He said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Paul is charging Timothy to make God the center of his life. To have God be the thing that he pursues after. For Timothy to fight the good fight of faith, to live for God, to live for the eternal. And Paul tells him how long he needs to do this. He says to keep this charge without spot, blameless, until the appearing of Jesus Christ. How long does he have to do this? Well, until the job's done. 
Okay. How will he know when his job's done? Well, his life will either end or Christ will return. Those are the only two options for when he would be finished. See, you guys, following Jesus Christ is a lifelong commitment to pursuing him, to making him the center of your life. Okay? We're, we're never done okay? until the day Jesus calls us home. Okay? Whether that be our days here on earth are, are done or whether that be he call us to himself in the rapture, until that time, look, there's still work to be done. There's still a fight that needs to be fought. And we need to be engaged in that fight. In verses 15 and 16, Paul goes on to describe the timing of Christ's appearing, how it will be manifested by God the Father in God's own time. Jesus said, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. If someone ever comes up to you and says, oh, you know, I, we know when Jesus is coming back. We've read the prophecies and, you know, we have this secret knowledge and we figured it out and it's going to be on this date. Do not listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about. Okay? No one knows the day or the hour except for the Father. Okay? So don't listen to anybody that tries to tell you that they know the time when Jesus is coming back. Okay? Paul describes God as blessed and the only potentate that it's a title. It means the sovereign ruler over all. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He alone has immortality. Now, God will give to us immortality, okay? but he alone has it inherently within himself. He's not subject to death at all. He gives immortality to others, but none give it to him. He alone is immortal. He dwells in unapproachable light, and no man has seen or can see the fullness of God. He is awesome beyond our wildest imaginations, okay, and is worthy of all praise, honor, and glory, okay, to him alone is everlasting power. What a powerful and awesome description of the God that we serve. And this is what Timothy needed to keep in mind as he kept this commandment. As he fought the good fight, looked to the eternal, pursued God to make him the center of his life, he could envision the power and the glory of God Almighty and trust that one day he would enter into his presence and he would hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, this reminds me of the exhortation in Hebrews chapter 12, where the author exhorts us to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is our example. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He fought the good fight of faith, okay? He surrendered his life to the will of the Father and he completed his mission. He died upon the cross, but then rose again back to life, defeating sin and death and was welcomed before the Father in heaven. And as we engage in the good fight of faith and we lay hold of the eternal, okay? May we envision that glorious day where we will be brought into the presence of of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we will come before our sovereign Lord. Listen, if that doesn't get you excited, I, mean, I don't know what would. 
to come before God Almighty. What a glorious and amazing day that will be. Well, Paul had another group that he mentions here at the end of his letter, and it has to do with those who have money, the rich. Okay, so let's read verses 17 through 19 to see what exhortation Paul gives to Timothy concerning the rich. He says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Paul brings up his final group of people that Timothy will have to deal with in the church ministry, and that is the rich people. Those who are rich in this present age, those who have money, those who are wealthy, Paul has just talked about the temptation and the snare that the desire for riches can bring and how it has led a great many astray. But that doesn't mean that all who have riches are sinful. Remember what Paul said. He said it was the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. But money in and of itself is not evil. It's immoral. Okay, It's neither good or bad. It's not good or evil. Okay? Money is a tool. Okay? Uh, it all depends upon what you do with money that's been given to you, whether or not it's going to be good or evil. It's what you do with it. Now, these exhortations in verses 17, 18, and 19 pertain to those who are rich, to those who are wealthy. And I imagine most of you may think that this does not apply to you, that this only applies to millionaires and billionaires, but you are very mistaken, okay? If you work for the government and have a guaranteed paycheck every couple of weeks, you're rich, okay? Uh, If you can afford to live in Japan or the United States without any extra support, you're rich when it comes to the world standards of wealth. Do you realize that over half the adult population in the world has a total wealth under $10,000. Okay? 10% of this world's population lives on a daily income of less than $2.15 a day. Okay? So you are not poor. Okay? You have great wealth. And so these exhortations Timothy was to share with the rich are for each of us. Paul commands Timothy to share four exhortations with those who are rich in this present age. Two are negative and two are positive. The first exhortation Paul shares is to not be haughty. The sense of this word is being prideful or arrogant. It carries with it the idea that you think you're something special and that because you have money, you're somehow better than everyone else. Listen, you don't have anything to be prideful about. Everything that you have has been given to you by the Lord. John the Baptist states, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. James writes, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of churning. To the church in Corinth, Paul questioned, what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And some of you may object and say, no, you know, it was by my supreme intellect that I used to earn my money. Or perhaps, no, it was by my own brute strength that I labored harder than everyone else and I earned my riches through the own sweat of my brow. 
Let me ask you this. Who gave you that intellect? And who gave you the strength to work hard? Does it not come from the Lord? The scriptures attest in Deuteronomy 8 that it is the Lord our God who gives us the power to get wealth. And so if you have wealth, the power to get it came from God. And so if you have it, there's no room to boast. It isn't something to be prideful of or haughty about. God's gifted you. Okay, You should instead be thankful that God so chose to bless you in this manner. The second exhortation was not to trust in uncertain riches. Riches are uncertain. Here today, gone tomorrow. Stocks fall, economies crash, assets can be destroyed, thieves can come and steal. Proverbs 23, 5 states, Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings, and they fly away like an eagle toward heaven. What is your hope in? What are you placing your trust in? Are you looking to your riches, to your savings account, to your 401k, to your you know, uh, vast portfolio? Or are you looking to the Lord and trusting Him for your current and future needs? Paul exhorted the rich to put their trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Your heavenly Father knows all of your needs and He's able to meet them. He provides in abundance that we may enjoy the blessings that He gives. Ecclesiastes states, As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. If God has given you an abundance, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the gift that God has given. But we are not to place our hope or our trust in these things. Our focus and our attention must remain upon the giver and not the gifts. The third exhortation Paul gave was to do good, to be rich in good works, and specifically he highlights being ready to give and willing to share. The idea here is that you are generous. You are willing and ready to spread out the riches that God has given to you. Proverbs states, There is one who scatters, yet increases more, and there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. You guys understand that proverb, right? You know, there's someone who scatters, and you think, oh, he's losing stuff. But yet they're going to get back. But that person that holds back more than what he should, they end up in poverty. Some of the richest people I know are some of the most generous people I know and giving people. God will continue to bless and provide for those who prove to be faithful conduits of his blessings. If God knows that he can give you wealth and give you blessings and you're going to turn around and you're going to spread that around to be a blessing to other people, he's going to continue to provide. Those who look to hoard it for themselves and aren't ready to give nor share, they only end up bringing poverty to themselves. If God has blessed you with wealth, with riches, which I already said, that's all of us, okay? Then we need to be ready to give God's blessings away, to scatter God's blessings into the lives of those around you that they may be enriched as well. You know, giving is something that I 
really don't like to talk about. Okay? So many people think that the church is out for your money, and so I try not to talk about it. But when the scriptures speak about the need to be ready to give and willing to share, it's kind of hard to avoid it. Okay? Giving is a Christian discipline that I believe helps grow us and mature us in our faith. It is a simple and practical way to demonstrate your faith and trust in God. As God gives to you in abundance, how much of that are you willing and ready to give back? You know, the law required that we give a tithe or a tenth of our income back to the Lord. And even though the law was fulfilled in and through Christ, the need and practice of giving remains. You see, giving of the tithe actually predates the giving of the law. Abraham was the first person to tithe. After returning from the battle, Abraham was met by Melchizedek, and during their encounter, Melchizedek attributes Abraham's victory to God, and he blesses Abraham, but at the time was named Abram. Later comes Abraham. We know him as Abraham, right? And it's in response to the blessing he received from God that Abraham gave a tithe or a tenth of all he had, Genesis 14, 19, and 20. Not only does giving predate the law, we also see that it was something strongly encouraged even after Jesus' fulfillment of the law. In Corinthians, Paul wrote to them encouraging them to excel in giving. He wrote, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. We are to purpose in our hearts what we will give. We're not to give grudgingly or out of a sense of necessity. If you only give because you feel like you have to, keep your money. And I mean that with all sincerity and integrity. God doesn't want you to give because you feel like you have to. He wants you to give because he knows it will bless you and it will grow you and it will mature you in your own walk with him. It will further develop your dependence upon him. God does not need your money. <laughs> uh, despite what you may see on TV, okay, or uh, maybe hear on the radio or some podcast, God is not broke. Okay? God does not need us to fund his you know, bank accounts so that he can do things in this world. Okay? It's a joke, okay? You know, when I was back in the States, I was trying to listen to some Christian radio, but it seemed that all they ever talked about was how they needed supporters to call in and give their money and that they wouldn't be able to do what they did without people calling in and pledging to give. And I just thought, man, God knows how to take care of his own, okay? And that goes for his own people and that goes for his own ministries, okay? Don't let anyone coerce you into giving or to make you feel like you have to give. And if a ministry is at the point where they're saying, we can't go on unless you give, well, maybe it's time to pull the plug, okay? Giving is something between you and the Lord. He wants you to be ready to give, willing to share, ready to spread out the blessings he's given to you, for he knows it's going to bless you. It's going to help you as well as those with whom you give to. 
The fourth and final exhortation involves storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now, don't read this and think that you can use your riches as a way to enter into heaven to lay hold on eternal life. Eternal life is not something that can be bought with money. Eternal life was purchased for you and for me with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He is the only way into heaven. He is the only way to receive life everlasting. The idea here is that the rich are to invest their wealth in the eternal. They should be giving to the things that are impacting God's kingdom. They need to be storing their treasures in heaven like Jesus described in Matthew chapter 6. Again, during the Sermon on Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that is why God wants us to be givers because he knows Where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. And God wants our hearts. God wants us investing in the eternal, building a foundation for the time to come, not living for the fleeting treasures of this world, but for the treasures that await us in heaven. Let's wrap up our text with Paul's final admonition towards Timothy, verses 20 and 21. He says, O Timothy... Guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. One final imperative for Timothy to receive, Paul commands Timothy to guard what was committed to his trust. You know, earlier in this letter, back in chapter 1, Paul spoke about the glorious gospel of the blessed God which had been committed to his trust. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. I believe this is what Paul has in mind here as he commands Timothy to guard what, that which has been committed to his trust. Okay? Paul had been entrusted with the sharing of the gospel and the defense of the gospel, and he passes that responsibility on to Timothy. Later in 2 Timothy, we'll get to that in the next few weeks, uh, Paul exhorts Timothy to take of the things that he's heard from Paul among many witnesses and to commit these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so the idea is the responsibility to share the gospel, to defend the gospel, to, to spread the gospel. It lied with Paul, who then committed those things to Timothy, who in turn was to commit those things to other faithful men, who would then in turn share it with others. You see, we all have a responsibility to guard what has been entrusted to us. We are all stewards of the gospel message. We have a responsibility to share the gospel, to defend the gospel, to not be ashamed of the gospel, to pass on the gospel to subsequent generations, that the gospel may continue to spread and that lives would continue to be impacted for eternity. Paul warns Timothy not to get caught up with the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Basically, Paul was, again, warning Timothy to avoid the doctrines that were being spread by these false teachers in Ephesus because some have gotten so caught up in it that they've strayed concerning the faith. That word stray, it, it comes from the Greek root word, which simply means to miss the mark. But this particular word is distinct in that it does not mean to miss achieving the aim that one set, 
but not to set the proper aim at which one ought to aim. Do you guys understand the difference? Okay. It's not that they were shooting at the right target and simply missed. They, were, they missed the mark. They were aiming at the wrong target altogether. Okay? That's what this means. Okay? The goal of these false teachers was not godliness. It was greed. They sought after and proclaimed a secret knowledge that others knew nothing of. They lifted themselves up in pride rather than lifting up Christ and humbling themselves. Timothy was to avoid these things, to not have anything to do with them. Instead, he was to seek after God, live for the eternal, guard the gospel that had been committed to his trust. And then Paul ends his letter the same way that he began it, with grace. Grace be with you. Amen. It's all about God's grace, you guys. Okay? How can we live for the eternal? How can we honor God with our lives? How can we fulfill these exhortations to us as rich people and to give as God would have us to give? Well, it's only by the grace of God being poured out upon us. It's only by God's grace we're able to do anything for God. And I, one of the things that I think is really interesting here is when it says grace be with you, that word you is actually in the plural form. Okay? It lets us know that this letter, while penned to Timothy, was meant to be read and shared amongst the church there in Ephesus and the other churches in this area. These words Paul had for Timothy weren't just for Timothy. They were for us all. And so I hope that you guys have enjoyed our time in First Timothy, this letter that was written to Timothy but was for us all. And next week, Lord willing, we'll begin the book of Second Timothy as the Lord allows us to continue marching through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and, and these final exhortations and imperatives that Paul had for Timothy regarding the ministry that you had called him to. Lord, we want to follow these exhortations. We understand that these exhortations are for us as well today, that we are to flee uh, seeking after earthly riches, Lord. We're not to have anything to do with that, not to be concerned with those things, Lord. We're to pursue after uh, righteousness, Lord. We're to pursue after godliness and faith and love and even patience and gentleness, Lord. We need to pursue after you and fight the good fight, laying hold of the eternal, Lord have our entire lives being focused upon pressing forward to you and looking forward to that day that we will enter into your presence. Lord, may we be excited about that day. May we run after you and be diligent with the work that you've given for us to do. Lord, we're still here, so we know the work's not done. Show us the fight that we need to be engaged in, Lord. Show us what we need to be pressing toward. And Lord, we thank you that we know that whatever that is, it'll be by your grace that we're able to accomplish it. And so, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. And we thank you for this letter of 1 Timothy, the blessing that has been for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.